0: Listener production. Punchy. Whacked. Power. Influence. Take me seriously because I've actually got some clout behind what I'm saying. Welcome to Women with Clout. <laughs> Well, this episode, it's very exciting. We're going to be talking to Libby Lyons, who is, of course, the Director of the Workplace Gender Equality Agency and has been doing that since 2015. Uh, she's had a whole lot of roles across business and particularly in the resources sector, Catherine. She's got um, a,
1: a lengthy career in business, which uh, all of which has given her uh, wonderful insights into the, the way that women in the workplace, the kind of barriers they're facing, but also the need to collect data and have evidence of what's going on. So, uh, fantastic to be able to talk to her about that. Um, I've found uh, the Workplace Gender Equality Agency an absolute goldmine of information over the years and I'm very interested to hear what she tells us about it. The journalist's
0: friends and of course let's not ignore politics because Libby comes from a stellar dynasty, a political dynasty, which includes of course the first female member of federal parliament in Australia. (music) Before we get further into the job you've got now, mm. um, take you back to those primary school teaching years. It's interesting how many of the women we've spoken to began their careers as teachers. School teachers have to prepare their lessons early uh, because the school day starts, you've, you're on, you've got to go and you've got to do it. But what else about being a primary school teacher do you think prepared you for the role you're doing now? And why were you interested in primary school teaching originally? Uh, well, my mother
2: thought, primary school teaching would oh, right. be good for me actually because <laughs> I I left school and I actually uh, I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do so I went to university and did uh, started a commerce degree at Melbourne University and uh, I really wanted to do arts but in those days you had to have a maths or a language and I had neither I was a humanities girl so um so I did commerce and and I really when I started it I had no idea what commerce was about and that first economics lecture where they told me that um you know unlike most universities Melbourne University started their commerce degree with Uh, microeconomics rather than (laughs) macroeconomics. I sat there and nearly had a fit. I thought, what in goodness name are they talking about? Anyway, it didn't take long before I dropped out of that and I started working. And I always remember my mother in about, probably about the September of that year, sitting me down having a good chat to me and saying, you know, if you think somebody's going to tap you on the shoulder and you're going to become the next Miss Whatever or then you've got another thing coming. You know, you've got to do something and you've got to get some qualifications behind you. And she said, what about school teaching? You've always been great with children. And typical of mothers in those era in, in that era, she said to me, and it's always a good profession for women because once you have children, you've got the school holidays and that's very important. Very good practical advice. Not so sure I'd give that advice to uh, if I had a daughter these days, but but it was good advice. And I have to say... Teaching is the hardest job I have ever done. Mm. It is, along with nursing uh, and childcare, they are the most important jobs in our community, bar none as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and yet teaching was the toughest job I've ever done. It's such hard work. But what it did was it set me up so well for every other job that I've ever had because as a teacher, you have to manage so many groups of different, we call them stakeholders these days, but, of course, they were just different groups of people that you had to work with. Mm. Parents, children, other teachers, school boards, the local community, all of those different groups you have to work with and manage and the most important group, of course, were the children that you taught. And I... Um, I had a class of 40. So straight out of college and I had a class of 40 and I have to say that tested me every day. Mm -hmm. So it has held me in such good stead for every job I've ever had since. Isn't it
0: interesting you talk about those three professions, nursing, teaching and childcare and I guess care in general? They're all female-dominated professions. They're all, as you say, fundamental, incredibly important and very tough in terms of expectations and skills and emotional kind of um, input, investment. that, yeah, investment, yeah, better word, that you have to put into it. And yet they remain... Lowly paid, fairly low status. You know, it's hard to escape that feeling that whenever it's a female-dominated
2: profession, we kind of take it for granted. We don't value it. No, No, and that's the bottom line. Mm. That is absolutely the bottom line, Catherine. Mm. It talks to the way in our community today we value the people that do the most important job. Mm. And, uh, you know, this is where we have to start shifting mindsets this is where we have to start challenging women and men and if we look at at the data the two growth areas in terms of industries are educa- education and training and healthcare and social assistance two female dominated industries uh, that are that really need to balance their workforces by getting more men in. Mm. Um, So we really have to start challenging all those stereotypes that we've all grown up with.
1: We'll talk about that a little bit more, I I suspect, later on. But I did want to actually take you back to growing up because it's a remarkable family that you come from. Tell us a little bit about growing up as the granddaughter of Joseph Lyons and Damien Lyons.
2: It, it, look, it was it, it it was my norm. So, yeah. you know, when I look back, it was far from normal in lots of ways because my father was also in politics. So I was born in a little town on the northwest coast of Tasmania called Devonport, which, of course, is where Joe and Enoch lived. They lived their lives. Other than when he was prime minister and they were in the lodge, that's where they lived. Uh, and it, a little town, and everybody knew everybody else, and they certainly all had known Joe before he died and they certainly all knew they mean it. And um, so, so very much the norm for me. I have really fond memories of having regular family get-togethers and things at Nan's house. She was, after all, just Nan, mm. up at Home Hill, that the house that her and Joe had built. Fabulous lunches and dinners and things that would often end... With a sing-along round the piano because Nan played the piano. And she, of course, had grown up a Methodist and had converted to Catholicism to marry Joe, which was very interesting. And but the Methodists had these really rousing hymns. And so she'd hit the piano and taught us all these Methodist hymns, which, looking back, is hilarious. You know, <laughs> all, all you know, probably twenty or thirty at different times around the piano, singing these rousing hymns. Sounds hideous today. And if my son came home and told me that he did that, I'd think, oh goodness. But but that's what we did, and it was that sort of entertainment that you grew up with. And and um, and you know, she she was she was indeed an incredible woman. Uh, Whatever she turned her hand to, she could do. Mm. She painted. She redesigned the whole garden and and put it together herself with the help of my father at times. But, you know, building fish ponds and rockeries and just incredible. She wallpapered different rooms of the house. She painted a mural on one of the walls of the house. She could cook Um She was a wonderful, wonderful storyteller and would keep you enthralled for hours. And I guess like anyone who grew up, you know, my my one regret is that I didn't talk to her more, that I didn't ask her more questions uh, and talk to her about the people she met and the places that she went. Um, But I think, you know, most of us as we get older and Middle Asian beyond, goodness me, uh, you know, I think that probably is the regret of lots of us. Do you think, though, whether
0: you talked to her as much as you would have liked to, do you think, though, that the fact that you're the granddaughter of the first female member of the Australian Federal Parliament gave you a sense in which anything was possible, that even though your mother said, being a primary school teacher is a good job for a woman, which is a fairly traditional attitude of Mm. the time. But you came from a background where the fairly traditional attitudes were not actually what were lived Mm. out. Um, Do you think that made a difference and do you think it has any connection with the fact that you're now heading the, Mm. you know, WGEA?
2: Oh, it absolutely did. I mean, you know, because I look at um, my grandmother and, and, in fact, my mother, I mean, my mother did tell me that, but, but she worked all her life as well. And, um, and I remember mum also saying to me, you know, go out and explore the world. Don't think you have to marry young, settle down and have children. You've got, you've got years to do that explore the world I wished I'd had that option when I was your age and I did exactly that and I, I lived overseas for many years. so so mum was fantastic like that but 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 with with Nan she he, he, you did it was just whatever you wanted to do you just grabbed it by the horns and you went with it and you gave it your best shot and sometimes it didn't work but don't let that put you off pick yourself up, dust yourself off and move on and try the next thing. And so there was very much for me growing up this, this certainly I had this attitude that it didn't matter what I did, I had to give it a go. And the other thing was I I always, I suppose I always was prepared to take risks with my career. So, um, you know, there have been numerous times where I've had a really nice, cushy job, well paid and opportunities knocked but it's meant A 12-month contract.
1: So, um, tell us a bit about that because obviously uh, you you did start teaching. uh, You trained as a teacher and you had 40 in your first class um, but you moved uh, eventually obviously into more of the corporate world, uh, the business world. Um, Why did that happen and and I guess tell us a little bit about the things that you've picked up along the way because you've worked for some very large Mm -hmm. organisations particularly in sort of the resources area Mm -hmm. which is a very male-dominated sector.
2: I suppose it always was about that next opportunity. Mm. I've always been looking for that next opportunity, but more importantly, the next challenge because I get bored. Mm. I get bored and I've got to move on and I've got to have another challenge. And and I think with teaching what it was, I in the very, very early days, I got into IT in teaching and was pretty unhappy about it too because uh, I, the one time that I had a bit of downtime as a primary school teacher was when my class went off to computing. And at the end of one year, the headmistress said, no, next year, you've got to take computing yourself. Well, I was up in arms, of course, and I've always been vocal in my uh, disagreement with different issues. And um, I remember saying to her, this is ridiculous. You'll be asking me to teach Chinese next. And she just looked at me and she said, well, that's bad luck, Libby. This is the way it is. So I thought, if I've got to do it, I've got to know something about it. And so went to classes after, you know, after work and things like that to learn about it and found that I picked it up easily and that I was able to explain some of the technical stuff quite well. So then I started running classes for teachers after school and things. And then I thought, hey, this is my ticket out of teaching. Yeah. This is my ticket out. And sure enough, I went on and, and and got into the IT industry in the very, very early days of PC. So again, moving from a, you know, a nice comfortable job with great hours and great holidays into something completely different. And that that's really what I've done throughout my life. And I think the getting into the resources industry, particularly in terms of that sort of corporate affairs type role and government relations type role that I did was actually quite a natural progression for me because you're right, Jane, you know, I've got the politics sort of runs through my veins. It's in my DNA and I get it. I understand how government works. I understand and actually have great respect for our politicians because I know firsthand what they do and the sacrifices that they and their families make. Mm. And uh, and people don't, the average person doesn't see that and doesn't get that. And it's a relentless job, it's a thankless job, and it's a nigh on a 24-7 job. Mm. And so I tried at different uh, di- different stages in my life. I-, I thought I might try and get into politics because as a little girl I always wanted to be the first female Prime Minister, of course. <laughs> um, and then I realised that actually there are other ways that you can change public policy and there are other ways that you can make a difference in life and a difference to people's lives without being a politician.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, um, and and so that's why uh, this job for me now uh, is, is just the best job in the world for me. When did you start to think, I want to do
0: something to help women being able to advance um, in the workplace?
2: I think... I think I've always, um, it's got me into a lot of trouble throughout my career because I've never been able to tolerate uh, anybody in the workplace being treated unjustly and uh, I have never been able to sit back and watch it happen um, and, and be quiet about it. I've always spoken up about those things, whether it whether it was an injustice to a man or a woman, it didn't matter. If something unfair is happening, I have always felt that I've I have an obligation to myself and to those to the others that I work with and to those coming behind me too that I had to speak up. And it has got me into trouble. I've lost jobs over it. I've been given, you know, the worst possible rating you can ever get on you your you performance reviews and all of those sorts of things purely because I've spoken up. Mm-hmm. And and I think um, so inherent in all of that, of course, women have always been treated more poorly in the workplace than men. And so, you know, a lot of the time that standing up and speaking up um, has been against the way women in particular have been treated. Uh, so if, for me... It's just something that I, I, I just, I can't sit by and watch. Um, but would I change a thing? I, I absolutely wouldn't. I would do the same thing again. And I, I just can't bear an injustice and I, I I'll I, I'll say what I think about it.
1: Libby, can you tell us what the Workplace Gender Equality Agency data collection uh,
2: encompasses and what the agency is actually there for? So um, the Workplace Gender Equality Agency came about as a result of the Workplace Gender Equality Act, and it was put in place to address the historic disadvantage of women in the workplace. Uh, we collect data every year from every organisation in the private sector with more than 100 employees. So we collect data on roughly 4 million employees from 12,000-plus employers. Women now comprise uh, of more than 30% of key management personnel. And when you look at key management personnel are usually those people that report into the CEO. So we've now hit that for, that 30% mark, which is fantastic because we've now sort of got the critical mass there. So we are seeing that pipeline broaden as we go up. But again, a lot of room for movement there. And I think the important thing that we must always remember in all of this is that we still only have of CEOs uh, in our data set are women. The information we collect is around six gender equality indicators. Um, So we collect information about the composition of the workforce, so the sorts of jobs that women and men are doing. We collect information about uh, the composition of their governing boards Um, so how many women and men are on the board of the organisation. We collect information around the pay, what they're paying women and men in those organisations to give us um, an indication of the pay gap. Um, We collect information around what employers are doing to support uh, employees with caring responsibilities, whether that be for children, for elderly people or for people with disabilities. So the sorts of practices they have in place, the sorts of things that they do to support them, flexible work, for instance. And we also collect information on how they consult with their employees and the sorts of things they consult with their employees on, and we also collect information around sex-based harassment and discrimination. So, all of that information comes into us on a yearly basis, and every year around November, we release our new set of data. So, you stepped into the role at the agency in 2015, What did you hope
1: for in the role? Because it is an incredibly important body. Uh, Again, I'm probably a little biased, but the data that you capture um, is really world class. It's provided us, those of us who are out there, talking about this all the time uh, to various audiences. It's, It's an absolute goldmine because we have proper, concrete, consistent evidence of what's going on. What were you hoping to do when you stepped into the role and where did you want to see the agency go?
2: Well, when I knew that I had the job, I, sort of, I spoke to a lot of people. I spoke mm-hmm. to a lot of people in the industry. I spoke, to, um, I spoke to friends. I spoke to family. I spoke to as many people as I could. And the thing that, the, 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 the one thing that kept coming up time and time again was what a valuable data asset we have as a country. So in going into the job, I realised we had this pot of gold and that the most important thing was that we must use that data to uh, to to do a couple of things. First of all, to use it as evidence to really drive the change that we need, and that meant that in order to be able to use it, we had to impart the information in a way that everybody understood, but particularly employers. And we had to get those employers genuinely along on this journey and realising that that this wasn't this this isn't just a good thing to do or the right thing to do. this is this actually makes business sense, it makes good business sense. So it was very much taking the data and putting, I suppose more of a corporate focus on it to say, you know, this is why you need this change because this is going to be better for your business. So very much about that business case. I think the other thing that I wanted to do was um, I understood very early on that what we had in Australia and the reporting regime that we have in Australia, uh, there was no other country in the world collecting this sort of data, and that. This whole issue around um, creating uh, a place where women have exactly the same opportunity for a man to have a career is not just something we need to do in Australia. We've got to do it across the globe. and that if we are doing something that is is really uh, showing and and the evidence is there that we are driving change, then we should be sharing that. This is a global issue. This is this is not just an issue for Australia. It's not just an issue for women, and it's not just an issue for men. This is a, this is something for all of us. And I was very passionate that we should start telling the rest of the world how important this collection of data is, because people who run businesses understand numbers, mm-hmm. and if you can show them the numbers and you can show them the hard evidence they sit up and take notice by and large. And so uh, I, I also wanted to be able to, to, for us all to be proud as Australians of what we're doing here, we're leading the way mm. and we're great in Australia at cutting ourselves off at the knees mm. and saying, oh, you know, but somebody else is doing it better. You know what? This is one thing we are doing better than anybody else. So let's be proud and push it out there. <laughs>
1: What else are we doing, though, in terms of the actual steps that we're taking in workplaces? Because I absolutely understand what you're saying. And it is, it's is—it's a great um, data collection model and, as you say, one of the best in the world. Where do you think, though, the Australian um, employment scene is? Where have we done well uh, for women and where are we not doing so well?
2: I think there is um, far greater recognition out there now than there was five years ago about the importance of having gender-balanced workplaces. I think there is um, far greater uh, understanding uh, by employers that they need to look at their own workplaces and get the data for their own workplaces, and BHP is a perfect example of that my former employer, and I have to say, when Andrew McKenzie came out and said we're going to aim for gender balance by 2025, there was no-one more cynical on this planet about that statement than me. But to give credit where credit is due, they have done an amazing job. They looked at their data. They discovered that their sites that had better gender balance uh, were not only hitting their production targets quicker but they were safer. Mm. And when and when the CEO saw that, he had to act. Yeah. He had to act. And I think this is the sort of information that uh, employers need to collect about their own workplaces to really understand how important it is. And so I think that we're starting to see more of that. The area where I am concerned um, is uh, the number and percentage of women on boards. Uh, Over the five years that we've been collecting data, that figure has basically remained static. Mm. And, you know, I put that down to... um, the lack of transparency around board appointments and we've got to do something
0: about that. Mm. I mean, these things have a, a ripple effect beyond just the company that you're talking about. Other people who don't want to be proactive in terms of increasing the number of women in the workplace use that as a, as a way out, a, an excuse, if you like. Do you oh, see a bit
2: of that? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. It's an excuse and it's this, um, I think it's about taking the road of, Least resistance, you know. Uh, we've got a position available on the board. Oh, Charles, I know th- this would be his great opportunity to have a go at a directorship. Well, guess what? Charlotte's out there too, and she's just as capable, just as willing, probably more enthusiastic because the chairman only sees. Charlotte, when he's dropping his kids off at school, he doesn't think of her in that context. Mm-hmm. He's only thinking uh, you know, in his immediate circle of uh people that he works with, so colleagues, um, and probably, and I, you know, I say this tongue in cheek, but probably um with the lycra clad blokes he goes riding with on a Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. And um I think it's time we saw a few more chairmen play a bit of Netball,
0: absolutely. The other interesting thing is, I'm wondering what effect Me Too, the Me Too um, movement, has had on particularly boards, because I expected to see a bit more changing. Because I know I'm on a couple of pro bono boards, and one of the things we had a discussion about was what do we do if there's any. Um, you know, uh, problems in our organisations. Do we have the protocols in place? Are we doing the right thing? Which I think was an excellent and overdue conversation. But it also struck me, well, there's a really good rationale there for getting more women um, at the decision-making tables, particularly at board level, because they are more likely to be approached. They're more likely to to hear about what's going on.
2: Do you think that's had any effect on moving that needle at all? I certainly am seeing... Some different attitudes uh, in corporate Australia. And I think that the whole Me Too campaign has put executives in particular, but boards too, on notice and said um, that that nice little deal that was done behind closed doors uh, with money changing hands because a complaint was made is no longer the way and is no longer acceptable. Uh, We can't continue to sweep these issues under the carpet. We've got to be more open and transparent. We've got to have proper processes in place uh, and we have to ensure that people feel safe to not only make complaints but also that other colleagues feel safe to provide the support and any other um, information around specific cases So I am seeing that change. I refer back to the case recently of the ANZ uh, managing director coming out and talking about the questioning that ANZ lawyers did in that US case around the woman who had a, a sexual harassment case about the bank. You know, five years ago, even three or two years ago, we would not have seen a CEO come out and say, uh, I am CEO, I have learnt about this, I should have known about this, so that's no excuse. This is not acceptable. This does not sit with the values of our organisation. I will be ringing um, the person in question and I have instructed our people to instruct those lawyers that they are no no longer to take that, that course of action with that line of questioning. That, that line of questioning. Mm. Now, we wouldn't have seen that a couple of years ago. We just wouldn't have. Look, there are law firms who have actually uh, publicly sacked partners because they have been found to uh, behave inappropriately with other colleagues. Now, again, we've not seen this before, so it is making a difference. Mm. It is
1: It is a slow change in, yeah. in some ways, isn't it? Yes, as, as many of us um, would attest to. Libby, can I take you back to um, something that you said earlier uh, when you mentioned speaking up? And the penalties that you can run into and you Mm -hmm. said, you know, I've had very low performance rankings and so on and, and even lost jobs. How do you cope at times like that? Because I know we all talk about having strong values and being true to who we are, but there can be real repercussions, can't there?
2: There absolutely can, and I think that how do you cope? Well, I mope around for a while to begin with. <laughs> I have to tell you, good on and you. There will always be a few tears, and I'll take it out on my husband and my son and anybody <laughs> else that might be around. But but seriously, though, look, it it it, it it's a kick in the guts. Mm. No matter no matter who you are or how tough you think you are. Anything like that that happens, that it in itself was is unjust, is a real kick in the guts. And I think the thing is that you just have to put it all in perspective. I think you have to, at the end of the day, look at it and say, well, it was just a job. Uh, You have to believe in yourself and your own self-worth, which is really, really hard when those things happen, but you must do that because it's the only way you're going to get out there and get something else. Uh, So it's not easy, um, but it's like any hurdle. Um, It's like any curveball that that life throws you. Uh, It's, as I said to my son when his dad died, um, you know, life will throw you these curveballs. The thing that'll set you apart though, darling, is how you deal with them. And so I think you have to be as pragmatic as pragmatic as you can. You just have to believe in yourself, believe in your worth and just keep trying. Mm. Get out there and keep trying and and be honest, be honest with yourself and be honest with those around you. So, I think um not easy. And, but we've all experienced it and sadly we will continue to. And it's great, I think, for people to hear who may
0: find themselves facing an unjust response to them speaking up, that others have been there, done that, recovered, gone on to do better things. Because I think one of the things that you're talking about and certainly I think what the agency is trying to do and what Me Too to some extent is doing and also the reactions to that is it's all making the workplace less hostile to women because I think the thing that really struck me uh, when I, you know, kind of followed the Me Too movement as it hit and all the things that came out about it was we hadn't actually acknowledged, I hadn't acknowledged, despite my own experiences of it, just how hostile the workplaces have been until relatively recently to women entirely. The very fact that it's okay to have a backroom deal and, you know, pay money and the woman has to leave and everybody hushes it up, it just reveals Mm-hmm. that we the, the workplace until really recently was actively and Hostile. still
2: oh, is, I think.
1: And, yeah and still is and yeah. and someone um who uh, was analyzing the whole era actually called it a new era of transparency yeah. and I actually think there's a lot to be said for that because I think a lot of that behavior and hostility was also swept under the carpet mm. or our experience uh, was was double guessed you know what what do you mean you've been mm. treated in a biased way or that you're or you're facing sexism um you know, it's a lack of belief and credibility about what we do. Um, Libby, looking ahead, do you think change will speed up a
2: bit? I think as I get older, you know, I still have great faith in humanity and I have great faith in um, some of the wonderful people I've worked with and continue to work with and and with lots of the men that are running organisations that I meet with on a daily basis. I have great faith in them. Um, They are, they get it. And they are trying their hardest to make change and I will always encourage that and I will always push for that. So I I think a change is happening. And it it certainly isn't happening as fast as I'd like it. And I know as fast as you, Catherine, in particular, would like it. <laughs> but it is happening. And I think that we do have to continue to celebrate the baby steps. And I think every so often we have a year where, for instance, as in uh, the data for 2016-17, we saw a huge jump in the number of organisations that were that had a, a flexible policy or strategy in place. Now, that's great. That's fantastic. So we will have those years where we see some great strides. But then we'll have the other years, like this year, where they're just the steady little incremental changes and I guess the importance of the data is that as long as we keep seeing those steady incremental changes, as long as we don't see any of these major indicators go backwards, then we're on the right path mm-hmm. and we've just got to keep at it, remain optimistic and um, and and keep, you know, Keep plugging away at it and keep talking about it. I think change might happen a little quicker now. Mm-hmm. Um, and somebody was asking me just today, actually, how long did I think it would be before uh, we saw, you know, we were getting up towards 50-50 women on boards. Uh, and i it's always hard to look into that crystal ball, but I think give it 10 or 15 years and we will be there in terms of women in management, you know, we're up at about the 39% mark already. And if we looked at the data for, again, for 16-17, 43% of all promotions um, into management went to women. So if we see that sort of trend continue, in the next three to five years, we will hit that 50-50 magic mark, which I think is fantastic. But there are other areas where we've still got a lot of work to do. A question I'm dying to ask you is, I think all of this is fantastic and I'm a great
0: supporter of it, but if we get more women in management, in senior executive positions, on boards, running companies, what effect will that have, do you think, on the vast majority of women who are never going to be in the situation where that's likely... To happen, Are we just promoting a whole lot of already fairly privileged women or do you think it has an effect on the lives of all women when you get more women at the decision-making table?
2: I think it will affect the lives of all women because uh, gender balance brings more innovative thinking uh, and that is certainly something we all need moving into the, these new fields of work that we're seeing um, emerge. I think the other thing is that uh, there will be far more opportunities um, with the future of work uh, for women to be innovative and to do different sorts of jobs. I mean, you know, we've really got to get more women into technology and IT. All our apps and all of those things now are being designed for us by men Mm. and we need more women doing that sort of stuff. So there's a lot of opportunity there for women and I guess that's what it's about, Jane. It's about creating that level playing field so that I have the same opportunity as the bloke that sits next to me on the bus If I choose to have a career, that's what it's about. It's about choice too. But I think getting more women in senior roles will also, particularly in the female dominated industries, because at the moment, the reason that, for instance, there's a pay gap in the female dominated industries is because the management roles are held by men. Mm. So the minute we start seeing more women, Uh, in those senior roles, I think we will start seeing more innovative ways that the female-dominated industries will start engaging men and getting men into those roles Um, because, you know, men, as with women, can have very sustainable and rewarding careers as well. Um, I heard somebody talk the other night, Moya Dodd, who was the Woman of Influence
1: a couple of years ago at the AFR Awards, um, and she talked about the persisterhood, which I rather liked. And <laughs> well, I think I'm really just going great. to Dean. Libby, you are definitely a <laughs> member, as we all are indeed, of the persisterhood. It's been so lovely to talk to you. Not just Thank clout, you. but
0: persisterhood. Oh, well, well, I like that. <laughs> and I'll wear that badge with pride. Thank you. And Thank you. Pleasure. Women with Clout is presented by Jane Caro and Catherine Fox. Producer Lip Proud. Theme music
1: composed and performed by David Beckingham. Listener.